Hi, I'm Alan Murray, the CEO of Fortune Media, and you're listening to Leadership Transformed with Deloitte, which is a Fortune brand studio production for Deloitte without the participation of Fortune editorial staff. And I'm here with my good friend, Joe Yukazaglu, the CEO of Deloitte US and the sponsor of the Leadership Next podcast series, which has been running for 100 episodes now and an amazing a period of time in the history of business. So a very rich 100 episodes. Thank you for your support. Alan, it's a real pleasure for all of us at Deloitte to be a part of this. And little did we know when we initially architected the concept that we were entering into what has proven to be one of the most challenging and transformative couple years in, frankly, the history of business and society. And it's a pretty special endeavor to have been able to chronicle all of this real time. Yeah, I I totally agree. You know, you think about it. We actually started this effort before the pandemic. You could even get your head back to what that world was like. You and I were together in a room in Davos, Switzerland, with about 50 CEOs of major companies talking about how business was redefining its role in society. Fascinating conversation two months before the transformative impacts of the pandemic. I remember it vividly, and and the reality is that was shortly after the business roundtable came together to redefine the purpose of a corporation. And at that point, stakeholder capitalism was really a hypothesis. Well, we got the real life laboratory literally several weeks after we were all together. And what wound up transpiring is that so many other societal institutions proved to be incapable of rising to the challenge. And in that vacuum, business rose to the occasion and was instrumental to leading society through the brunt of the public health crisis and providing a path out, taking on some of these uh, massive social and societal issues that came to the fore. And what you're now seeing is that as a result of that success, now business is being asked to take on even more. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And it's been confirmed by these surveys showing that employers generally, and my employers specifically, uh, rank highest in trust surveys with people. I want to come back to that in a minute. But to me, what's so fascinating about the last two and a half years is that we have three different revolutions going on at the same time. One is a technology revolution that's transforming companies at a faster rate than ever before and was accelerated by the pandemic. One is the purpose stakeholder revolution that you were just talking about also accelerated by the pandemic. And then the third was created by the pandemic, this rethinking of how we work. We went from working in offices to working entirely at home to now trying to figure out what the future looks like, what hybrid is and means. And I want to talk about all three of those, but let's start with the technology piece because we have only seen the technological revolution and the transformation of companies inherent in that. We've only seen that accelerate in the last couple of years. No doubt. And in many respects, it's a a classic example of the old saying, let no crisis go to waste. There are so many ideas that were probably ripe for proliferation, but that tend to get caught up in the bureaucracy of the corporate world. And when there really was no other choice, it was either adapt and innovate or essentially perish. You saw companies cut through 
a lot of those bureaucratic processes, cut through a lot of the things that would have been caught in committee, and adopt at rapid speed, very successfully, and what you're now seeing is a desire of corporate leaders to keep that entrepreneurial mindset, to not let it go by the wayside, to let it serve as a lesson for what can be accomplished when boldness is the order of the day, when innovation is rewarded. And that's the challenge right now, is to not go back to the old way of essentially slow walking these things. Yeah, it's a really interesting point, Joe. You know, we heard over and over again on the podcast, CEOs saying the equivalent of, we did in five months what we had planned to do in five years, or we accelerated progress by a decade over the course of a year. So, But I do get a sense more recently that people are feeling like, wow, we're slipping back to old practices, and how do we avoid that? How do we continue the transformation that was accelerated during the pandemic? What's the answer to that question? I think it's a combination of you know, tone at the top of demonstrating clearly what behaviors are rewarded, of recognizing that when experimentation occurs, it won't all be immediately successful, but that those who are pushing the envelope and taking calculated risks are being rewarded, and that those examples are being uh, highlighted throughout the organization to create a culture of innovation. And then I think that's matched with the necessity of the moment that the world is transforming so quickly. There is this proliferation of incredibly promising technologies when you take the intersection of cloud and 5G and AI and machine learning and blockchain and recognizing that that is disrupting markets, that is disrupting sectors, and that in order for organizations not just to maintain their positioning, but to continue taking share, they have to be at the forefront of adoption in simply falling back on old methods is a recipe for disaster. I think that the pace of change and the fear of disruption that you're talking about uh, ties back to the conversation we were having about purpose. We heard this again and again in conversations on Leadership Next. The fundamental nature of leadership has changed. Things are moving so fast. The people at the top of these organizations are spending less of their time telling people what to do because, frankly, it has to happen in the field closer to the action. And they're spending more of their time trying to give a, a, a clear purpose and a clear direction and an inspiration, a motivation, a moral guardrails, et cetera. Uh, that seems to be a pretty significant change. But leadership was so different 20 years ago. It's well said, Alan. And there's so much good in this. When you look at the leadership style of a generation ago, it matched the economy of the era. And you know, it was all about essentially directing best practices from the center and providing prescriptive methodologies to continue to hone and fine tune uh, relatively repeatable processes. Well, in today's information age economy, it's impossible to come up with prescriptive from the center directives. The pace of change is too great. And so you're seeing a huge premium being placed on leaders who can demonstrate agility, recognizing that whatever plans one comes up with might quickly become obsolete. Leaders who can demonstrate empathy 
and form a connection with employees in unsettling times, leaders who provide a sense of purpose and values that can guide the decision-making that individual professionals are making on the front lines, and uh, frankly, an agility and range to move from topic to topic, whether it be macroeconomics this morning to logistics in the afternoon to public policy in the political arena, you have to be a voracious consumer of information to assimilate all of this and make sense of it for your people. Yeah, and it seems like that change in leadership style, which is a direct result of the technology revolution, is also part of what's driving the purpose and stakeholder revolutions, that uh, leaders feel they have to take stronger positions on social issues in order to adequately motivate talent. No doubt. We're in an incredibly competitive talent environment. People have choices. The proclivity to explore different options outside of one's employer is greater than ever. And as a result, organizations have this imperative to create a connection with their employees, to demonstrate that the values of the organization align with those of their employees, to give their people a sense that the work that they're doing day to day has real purpose and real impact on society more broadly. And those organizations that get this right are creating greater stickiness, greater loyalty, are gonna be the net winners when it comes to the shuffling of talent. And ultimately, while it gets framed as a challenge, there's actually a ton of opportunity in this because it's an opportunity for those that are creating a premium talent experience to add to their roster of great people. Hmm. Really interesting. What we heard over and over again on the podcast over the 100 episodes was three particular areas of social impact that companies were focusing on. One was health and well-being, and that was embedded in the nature of the crisis. Uh, uh, Companies were dealing with employees and with customers whose lives were threatened by the virus. The second was the environment. You really saw an explosion of commitments to net zero 2050 or sooner happen over the course of the, the last two and a half years. And the third was diversity, equity, and inclusion within the company, but also addressing inequality more broadly in society. And I'd like to talk a little bit about all three of those, but let's start with the increased emphasis on the well-being and the mental health of employees. Well, Alan, that certainly came to the fore during the brunt of the public health crisis, but it it is by no means subsided. There was a a great line on one of your podcasts several months back that, the people who are returning to the office now are not the same people who left the office a couple years back. And we can debate whether they actually are returning, and that's a whole other subject we can explore. We'll get but to I, that. <laughs> I, I still think that figuratively it is very accurate and descriptive. There was a collective trauma in society. People are still struggling, not only relative to the ongoing public health issues, but a whole host of mental health issues, of broader concerns given the fractured state of society. And so what you're seeing is a real imperative for companies to be there to support their people, to offer a whole range of benefits 
related to well-being. We put in place a concierge service around enabling our people and their dependents to access mental health services. And again, this is becoming one of those baseline benefit expectations that directly ties into the framing that you articulated. Yeah. And that increase in focus on wellness and mental health, I guess, was inherent in the nature of the pandemic. What wasn't inherent and what surprised me a bit was the acceleration of commitments to climate goals. I mean, it really is pretty stunning. Fortune's polls now show a majority of companies have either made net zero commitments to 2050 or sooner or intend to within the next year. Why did that explosion occur? There's a long history of the challenge of people being able to absorb and react to things that feel distant, even if they're really important and really significant, if you can't touch and feel them. Well, unfortunately, over the past year or so, way too many of us have been able to touch and feel the real implications of climate change. And the number of these weather-related events and catastrophes is only growing. It has created a groundswell within the population at large around the imperative to act. And you're seeing business, again, rise to the challenge and recognize that private enterprise has a critical role to play in driving the decarbonization of the economy. Now, that's not to say it's without debate. I think there's a, a widespread recognition that this isn't going to happen overnight. This is a multi-decade journey, and that frustrates some. But the reality is that you know, trying to flip the switch overnight is not practicable. It would throw the global economy into depression and create catastrophe for hundreds of millions of people. But what, what there is an expectation of is very strong commitment backed by investment, backed by accountability, and measuring this putting in place the systems to track whether progress is being made against those commitments to demonstrate that this isn't just words, but that it's very tangible action and not just commitments that will come back and measure 20 or 30 years from now, but interim steps to demonstrate that progress is being made. Yeah. So talk a little more about that, because the question I get over and over again, and, and look, I'm a lifelong journalist and my tribe is a tribe of skeptics. So it's understandable. This is what I'm hearing. But the question that people always ask me is what you just said. Hey, these 2050 commitments are years in the future. The CEO, you and me are all going to be long gone by the time 2050 gets here. Well, maybe not long gone, but likely gone. So how do we know it's real? You work with a lot of different companies. I mean, how real is this movement? It's not about 2050. It's about the roadmap to get to 2050 with a lot of measurable interim steps along the way. And you're seeing a confluence of factors that's self-reinforcing here between the agenda of the current administration and some of the regulatory moves that are in the works, the focus by providers of capital, the investment community on recognizing that ultimately this is going to play into long-term value creation and you know, sustainability of business models and cash flow generating capabilities and therefore a demand that those companies that are receiving those investment dollars have a defined ESG agenda. And so that all encourages me that it's, it's not just a question of whether companies are making statements to do right, but there's a variety of other other forcing mechanisms to bring this to fruition. 
And then, Joe, the third area that that companies really focused on, particularly in the aftermath of the George Floyd killing, was diversity, equity, inclusion, and, and the whole issue of inequality in society. The question people ask me all the time is, was that a moment or is there some fundamental change in the way businesses are dealing with these issues? Well, making supportive statements in the moment was actually the easy part. So now... Companies are being judged not just on what actions they took, but on what results they're driving. And this is an environment where you don't really get credit for trying. We've talked a lot about moving from effort to outcomes. People don't expect this all to have taken place overnight. There's a recognition. These are longstanding societal issues that take time to rectify. But what people do expect is transparency to actually share the current state and not in an overly aggregated level because you can paint a picture when you take multiple groups and you combine them together and it looks like an impressive statistic, but to actually get down to the very detailed representation of different identities and how far apart that is from the population makeup of the US and acknowledge that's an issue. And then to match that with real goals and accountability. What are the steps we're gonna take to help rectify that, to help create more inclusive organizations? And how are we gonna measure ourselves to determine that the desired impact is taking place? And what's the accountability going to be in terms of actually building this into performance management systems? That's where you see the conversation at today. Yeah, metrics and accountability, both on climate and on diversity are gonna be key to continuing to make progress. So Joe, as we move out of the pandemic, or I don't know if we're moving out of the pandemic, if we learn to live with the pandemic, uh, we have another revolution that that's caused. I mean, we we all knew how to work in offices. We all were forced to learn how to work out of offices. But now we're trying to figure out how to do some combination of the two, this whole notion of hybrid and people are in some days and not other days. And when should they be in and when should they not be in? And how do you make sure the right people are there at the right time? It's causing a massive redesign of the very nature of work. What are you telling your clients about how to deal with that one? First and foremost, we ought to have some humility here. Anybody who thinks that they've got this all figured out is kidding themselves. And this is a fundamental reordering of the way that society integrates work with life. And we're really early in the journey. What causes challenge is that you know, we, we live in such a polarized time that everything becomes a lightning rod, including this topic. And you still have too much of going to either end of the extreme. You have what I'll call the in-person traditionalists that insist that's the only place where very productive and collaborative work can take place. And that's just not aligned with the desires and demands of the current workforce. Then you have others who you know, would like to purport that entirely remote work is just as good. And if you don't sign up for that, you're not being inclusive. And in many industries and many professions, that just defies the reality of how important from a trust building and relationship and apprenticeship standpoint, co-locating is. And so more and more you're seeing a desire of organizations to try to blend the two, 
to meet somewhere in the middle, allowing employees who really do value the flexibility to keep a healthy level of it. There's been a demonstration of how productive people can be in certain parts of their job, the parts that tend to be more individualized work, but at the same time, be together when it matters. That's the phrase we've been using, together when it matters, that those moments with clients and customers and colleagues are invaluable in sustaining corporate culture and in a whole lot of things that you can't necessarily quantitatively measure, but that we know are really important to success and that have been eaten into over the last couple of years, and now you see a desire to try to make up for lost time and get groups back together and start to sort of rebuild some of that social capital that's been atrophied. Yeah. Yeah. It's so interesting talking to leaders about this because the three revolutions we've just been talking about intersect with each other in so many different ways. I mean, the technology revolution is certainly empowering the new approach to work and the ability to do hybrid work and providing new tools for making that possible. But I find a lot of leaders are also talking about the purpose revolution as helping create uh, the culture that used to sort of be created by the office, right? We were all in the same place, go out for lunch, go out for drinks, whatever, that a common purpose becomes not just a replacement, but actually a more powerful bond to hold organizations together. It's an important framing, Alan. One of the diagnosed root causes of this so-called great resignation is the lesser sense of connection that people felt to their organization when historically you were co-located the the vast majority of the working week and in a fully remote environment for a big chunk of the pandemic many companies found that that sense of belonging and connection waned and was a contributor to some of the turnover well connecting to the last conversation that we're not necessarily going back to the old way of being co-located for five days a week, the question then becomes what replaces that source of connection? And increasingly, there's a recognition that it really is purpose and values, that when people feel a sense of connection, of shared purpose, that their organization is doing work that aligns with their own value system, that that is a really powerful source of connection between an individual and their employer that's almost taking the place of some of what used to be created through co-location. Joe, I'm pretty sure you and I agree that these three revolutions are long-term trends. They're not fads. They're not temporary. They're not moments in history. There are directions that we are moving in business and in society. The leaders who we talked to over the 100 episodes seem to agree with that thesis, that, that these are persistent trends that they have to learn to deal with in very different ways than in the past. But they're also dealing now with some cyclical issues. We had supply chain problems caused by the pandemic that fueled inflation. The great resignation caused wage increases that that is further driving inflation. The Federal Reserve is now having to act more aggressively to combat inflation. Most of the CEOs I talk to these days think that we're headed somewhere in the next year and a half for at least a mild recession, if not something more serious than that. How do you do all this other stuff when you're staring inflation and recession in the face? In some respects, Alan, it sounds ominous, but it's not that dissimilar from the environment that 
many of us have had to navigate through multiple business cycles. Yes, the worrying signs are up, but you, know, you and I have talked about the fact that the basic laws of economics still apply. They apply relative to inflation with you know, a, a huge flood of fiscal and monetary support, and they apply relative to business cycles, and the economy from time to time will experience some slowing. And fortunately, given some pretty strong fundamentals in terms of a tight labor market and strong consumer balance sheets, I do sense that the general expectation of business leaders right now is that if we do hit a downturn, that it would more likely be at the lower end of the spectrum in terms of, of, of both severity and duration. And there's still a widespread belief that the medium to long-term fundamentals are extremely positive, that we're still in the early wave of adoption of you know, this transformative set of technologies that's going to transform the enterprise and going to drive a lot of real economic growth. And so the longer-term outlook still feels pretty bullish to me. And I suppose, as always, uh, if there is a recession, it will sort of highlight the differences between the companies that are getting this right and the companies that aren't. The ones who are, are making the right moves on the technology transformation, on the purpose and stakeholder transformation, and on the work transformation are the ones most likely to come out strong on the other end. Great organizations always come out of these challenging periods even stronger, and I don't think there's any reason to believe that this time would be different. Joe, always so great to talk to you. An amazing two and a half years and 100 episodes of Leadership Next. We've learned so much. I think we should give a, an MBA to anybody who listened to the whole series, but appreciate your support and sponsorship. Alan, it is a pretty special endeavor that you've created here to chronicle you know, one of the most transformative periods in the history of business and society. And it's been a privilege for all of us at Deloitte to be an integral part of it. The privilege is mine. Thanks so much, Joe. Leadership Transformed with Deloitte was produced by Fortune Brand Studio. Fortune editorial staff were not involved in its creation or production. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Fortune. 